is like. Let's take a little time this afternoon. We want to look at this psalm, this psalm we have just read. And we notice that it is a psalm with a universal appeal. The writer, the psalmist, appeals to all peoples. He calls on the inhabitants of the world of varying economic status. He says both low and high, rich and poor together. And the reason he's calling, he's making this universal appeal, is because what he has to say in the psalm applies to every individual, whether they are rich or poor, because if we talk about the matter of material possessions, every person stands in relation to material possessions in one way or another. They are either wealthy or they are not. And sometimes we have people who are not wealthy, people who are at the lower end of the ladder, who will think that the Bible only addresses the rich in terms of being cautious. But the Word of God addresses poor and rich alike when it comes to material possessions. Each face their own particular temptation on this matter of having or not having. In fact, the wise man Solomon prayed that God would make him neither rich nor poor. He says, lest if I become rich, I forget you, and I don't let me get poor, lest I steal and curse the name of my God. So this psalm has a universal appeal. It's a psalm that summons us to seriously focus on what matters most in life. It's a psalm that challenges us to come to grips with the fleeting, transient nature of material possessions in light of the stark reality of certain death. And as suggested by this psalm, as we will see, to be obsessed and preoccupied with one's material wealth is to be foolish. To live for wealth, to think of wealth, to let wealth be the end-all and the be-all of one's existence, according to the psalmist, is to lead a beastly animal existence. Now in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist lays out what is a central problem as he sees it in life. And as he surveys and he observes the wealthy, how they operate, particularly the oppressive, wealthy people, those who are ungodly and yet wealthy, he says, in verses 5 and 6, by way of question, he asks, Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surround me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? Today we have some individuals who labor themselves as Elites, they are wealthy, and these people have ambitions in terms of taking over the world, as it were, and they have an agenda with respect to running the lives of everyone else. In fact, some of them even would arrogate to themselves, it seems, prerogatives of deity, and this psalm is a psalm that addresses itself to those who would consider themselves high and mighty because of their status in life. And the rhetorical question raised by the psalmist is a timely and relevant question. This question concerning why he should fear when the iniquity of his foes surround him, those who would oppress him, 
uh, is a relevant question. Why so? Because the natural human tendency, listen, the natural human tendency of most people is to be intimidated by the unscrupulous ways of those who possess great power and great wealth. When wicked, wealthy people have the upper hand, particularly when they are seated in the place of power, they are capable of inflicting great harm on the weak and powerless. They have the proclivity to target and attack the godly, those who are intent on living for God, those who are intent on exemplifying righteousness in their conduct. The word of God speaks of this, for example, in Psalm 37 and verse 12, verses 12, 14, and 32, where we read the following. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The wicked, verse 14, draw the sword and bend their bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. Verse 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. And so there's this natural tendency to be intimidated, to be fearful by those who have power, those who are wicked and yet wealthy. That is why the word of God encourages the righteous in Psalm 37 and verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evil doors. Be not envious of wrong doors. Now what we want to do with this psalm this afternoon is to see the psalm answering for us, in fact, laying before us some sobering truths about earthly material possessions. And the first observation we make from the psalm is this, that one's wealth can do so much and no more. One's wealth can do so much and no more. Verses 7 through 9. With reference to those who, the psalmist says in verse 6, trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches, that is, make their wealth their gods, their object of worship. He says in verses 7 through 9 that they'll come, the essence of what he says in verses 7 through 9, is that they'll come to the very sad, disappointing realization that their abundant possessions cannot save them, cannot save them from death and more so cannot save or secure their eternal redemption. In fact, listen to what he says in verses 7 through 9. He says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see death. And here we are reminded of what the writer of Proverbs tells us, the wise man in in the book of Proverbs tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, where he says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Money cannot buy salvation, is what the psalmist is saying. Job 20 verse 28 speaks of those whose possessions will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. Says Job 20 and verse 29, this is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him 
by God. And when we read verses like these, particularly when we read Psalm 49, what we must ever remember is that the Bible is not against riches per se. The Bible is not against wealthy people. The Bible is not against having material possessions. In fact, some of the most godly people in scripture were extremely wealthy. We're talking about people like David, like uh, even Abraham. Abraham was a very wealthy man. And yet he was very godly. Indeed, we recall the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 26. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So the psalmist is saying, look, riches, wealth, material possessions can go so far and no more. Material possessions, wealth, cannot secure for us the saving favor of God. It, they cannot secure for us redemption. They cannot secure for us eternal life. Here's a second principle we learn, the second lesson we learn from this psalm, and it is this, that one's wealth is not eternal in view of the universal reality of death. One's wealth is not eternal by virtue of the universal reality of death. As the saying goes, statistics indicate that one out of one person dies. Matters not who one is. It matters not how influential one is or was in life. It matters not one's health regimen, the kind of doctors one had, the kind of diet one observed. Rich and poor, educated and uneducated, all go to the same place at some point or another. Why? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, for it is appointed to man once to die, but after that the judgment. When one dies, the word of God teaches whatever one possessed in this life, however abundant his or her possessions were, one leaves behind. Here's how our text describes the universality of death and the consequent release of one's hold on eternal wealth. Verse 10, for he sees, the psalmist says, that even the wise die, and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. The point here is that death is a great leveler of humanity. One writer makes the following observation. He says this, quote, Graves tending to be dug to roughly the same death. Death has been called the great leveler. Rich and poor, great and small, suffer an identical fate. Cemeteries are, he says, very democratic places, so this psalm is addressed to wealthy and poor alike, end quote. All eventually die, and whatever one possessed in this life, one will not take in the next life. In fact, as wise and as learned as one might be, the psalmist suggests there is no one who by his or her human wisdom can outmaneuver and bypass death. He says the most brilliant person as well as the fool die alike. And one's wealth, which could not in any way prolong One's life will inevitably change and sooner or later someone else will come to possess such wealth. 
In light of this, how sad it is that people will give all their lives, give all their pursuit, all their energy to the acquisition of things, and nothing is wrong with acquiring things, nothing is wrong per se with desiring to be wealthy. In fact, the Word of God commends saving, being frugal, working. But the point is, when these things become the be-all and end-all of our existence, that's where the problem is. They do not realize that all of those treasured and prized possessions will profit them nothing the day they expire. For death, as one writer puts it, will make it all come to nothing. Well, here's a third lesson we learn from this psalm, a third principle the psalmist brings out in this psalm, and it is this, that one's wealth can be, and I put it like this, one's wealth can be intoxicatingly Deceptive. One's wealth can be intoxicatingly deceptive. Verses 11 through 14. Notice, first of all, obsessed as they are with their wealth, these people the psalmist speak of fall into delusions of grandeur. They consider themselves big, they consider themselves massively important. Their wealth deludes them into thinking of themselves as being immortal and that. All that they have is going to last forever. Look at the A part of verse 11. Their inner thought, says the psalmist, is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. What is suggested here is that wealth has this way of generating in in an individual, of inducing an individual into a state of false security. Notice also in the B part of verse 11 that their wealth gives them a false sense of importance. Their wealth gives them a false sense of importance, so much so they name their estate after themselves. Look at verse 11b. They call their lands after their own names, the psalmist says. But what we notice is that as they assert their claim on the earth in this, situ- in this fashion, the chilling irony is that the earth will also lay its claim on them inasmuch as they are dust, they shall return to dust. Genesis chapter 3 verse 19, because they are going to die. That's what the psalmist is saying. And then we notice, according to verse 18, an account of their wealth, they are self-flattering. They are self-flattering. They count themselves blessed, of course, not blessed by God, but blessed by their own ingenuity, blessed by their own resources, blessed by their own initiative. An example of this would be seen in whom? In, in the rich fool. Remember Luke chapter 14, the Lord Jesus told this parable of this rich man, this wealthy man whose land brought forth abundantly. This man, instead of thanking God, instead of recognizing God as the one who provided for him, as the one who prospered him, he saw himself as the sole source of his prosperity, of his success. We read in verses 18 and 19 of Luke chapter 12, he says this, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there will I store all my grains and my goods. You see his sense of self-importance? My goods, my barns, my grains, and I will say to my soul, 
not the soul that God has given him, my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. The danger of earthly possessions is that it induces one to become self-confident, it induces one to become self-sufficient, it induces one to self-flattering where they think of no other but themselves. So living under a sense of false security, cocky and confident as they are, ungodly people of great possessions and power, they do not give the slightest thought to the fact that they must one day die. They see no need of such thoughts. They live with a false sense of comfort. They live with a false sense of fulfillment. But the sobering truth, notice in verse 12, is that as impressive and magnificent as they appear in power and in possessions, like everyone else, verse 12a, they die. Here's what the psalmist says, but man in his pomp, will not endure. They'll not endure. And given the fact that they died the way they lived, the psalmist suggests, that is to say they lived foolishly, they lived without God, they lived without the true riches that's related to eternal life, the psalmist suggests in verse 12a that there's nothing that distinguishes them from the beasts that perish. Here's what he says. He's like the beasts that perish. How sad. Underscoring the truth that man without God and without the knowledge of God is beastly in his ways and is beastly in his end. Note what verse 20 says. Man is in his pomp yet without understanding is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words, in other words, even after they die, you have people still lauding them, lauding their lifestyle. The psalmist notes their sila. Stop and think about that, is what is suggested there. And then he says this in verse 14, as sheep, they're appointed for Sheol, that's the grave. Death, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them, in the morning. What is meant here by the upright ruling over them in the morning? That the upright shall rule over them in the morning is perhaps a reference, it's, it's perhaps an allusion to the day of resurrection. That day when the dead, small and great, as the word of God teaches, will stand before God to give an account. They'll appear before God in judgment. At that time, the righteous will rule over the, those who are proud, those who are wicked and yet wealthy in the sense that they'll be on far better terms than those people are. In other words, because they trusted the Lord as their Lord, as their Savior, on this side eternity, they are welcomed into the eternal presence of God while the wicked are banished from him. Those who do not make God their trust, the word of God says they are foolish, and he says in the end, the righteous will reign, will rule over them. 
In fact, the last sentence of verse 14 describes their horrible fate in this fashion and their form, that is to say the impressiveness of their physical features, shall be for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. How sad and how tragic it is for one to die without God. Yes, they might have had abundance in this life, they might have prospered in this life, but they are poor, they are paupers as far as eternal life and their relationship with God is concerned. And then a fourth lesson we learn from this passage is is this, one's wealth may be the source of one's eternal destruction. Well, we've just hinted at that in our previous point, but the psalmist makes this even clearer in verses 18 and 19. One's wealth may be the source of one's eternal destruction. Here's what he says. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself, and though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he, that is the wicked, the oppressive, Wealthy wicked, he says, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Note that the problem, as we said earlier, the problem as outlined in this psalm is not with wealth per se. Rich people do not go to hell because they are rich. Neither do poor people go to heaven because they are poor. In fact, there are going to be poor people in heaven. And there are going to be a lot of wealthy people in heaven. A lot of poor will be in hell. A lot of rich will be in heaven. Nothing is wrong with wealth in and of itself. Rather, it is the rich who live without God, who live as though God does not exist, who live without understanding, and hence, who operate as beasts, whom the Bible describes as foolish. That's where the problem lies. For what shall it profit a man, Jesus says, if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, after noting the pathetic lot, and we're winding down this afternoon. After noting the pathetic lot, the sad fate that awaits those who die in their earthly pomp, in their earthly pride, apart from God, without the saving favor of God, verses 12 through 14. Notice what the psalmist does. He, in verse 15, he erupts in praise to God. As he looks at the wicked, as he looks at the oppressive people who are having their way in this world, taking advantage of people, basking in their prosperity. He erupts in verse 15, But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Why is the psalmist rejoicing? He's rejoicing in in his hope of eternal life. He's rejoicing in his hope of being welcomed by God into glory. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Stop and think of that, he's suggesting. And the verb that's translated here, received, is the same verb, is the same root word that is used in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, of God receiving or taking Enoch. You remember it was said, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. God received him. It is the same word that's used of the prophet Elijah 
who told his servant that he would be taken from him, 2 Kings 2 verse 10. And of course, the context indicates that he was taken up, he was received by God into heaven. The psalmist is saying, look, God is going to take me up. God is going to receive me to glory, for he is my redeemer. Here's the truth. You know this very well. There's no greater treasure on earth than the treasure of that salvation, eternal salvation, to be found in Christ. One could be a millionaire, one could be a billionaire, and without Christ, one is a pauper. One dies as a fool. And then in verses 16 through 17, we have the psalmist's happy resolution to the riddle he set out to resolve back in verse 15. Remember, he had asked the question, why should I be afraid here? He says in verses 16 and 17, he's actually stating an imperative. He's actually giving instruction. He says, do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away His glory will not descend after him. His glory will not descend after him because even his very form, as we saw earlier, is going to be marred by Sheol, by the grave. Here in verse 16, he doesn't ask a question as he did back in verse 15 as to why he should be afraid. He's actually saying, look, don't be afraid. It's as though after reflecting on the folly of trusting in riches in one's wealth as the be-all and end-all of one's existence, verses 6 through 16, he now comes to this settled conclusion that one should have no fear of such people. One should rather trust in the living God. So as we go through this psalm, let me give you some concluding thoughts. In this psalm, we could say this psalm before us, Psalm 49, is a psalm that is very much relevant to our materialistic age. In fact, it foreshadows some of the great pronouncements of our Lord Jesus on the matter of Riches on the matter of material possession, such pronouncements as Luke twelve fifteen, where Jesus warned, he says this, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Our Lord Jesus teaches there that our identity is not wrapped up in what we have, And he implies that our identity is to be wrapped up in who we are in God. Mark chapter 10, verses 23, 25, our Lord Jesus warned, he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And why did our Lord Jesus say that? Not Again, not because there's anything wrong with riches, but because there are certain temptations, there are certain dangers that are associated with being wealthy. As we saw in this psalm, wealth possessed without God leads to self-flattering, it leads to self-aggrandizement, it leads to pride, it leads to a false sense of security, it leads to the abuse of power. This psalm anticipates the teaching of Paul in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. Paul says there, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to serve. Verse 19, the storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says, charge those who are materially well off not to become obsessed with what they have, but to trust in the living God. And so we close with the thought that in light of these sobering perspectives, that this psalm places on material possessions in relation to the prospect of sure death, certain death, how sad and how foolish a thing it is for one to live for things, to live for what one has, to give oneself to the relentless pursuit of material wealth and not have in one's heart and life the living God. And Christ is that treasure, is that pearl of great price, which, as he says in, in one of the Proverbs, is likened to a, a treasure which a man finds, and when he finds it, he sells all that he has to possess it. Christ and a relationship with Christ is worth pursuing. Why? Because in him are the true riches, the riches that lead to life eternal, the riches that lead to fellowship and favor with God for all eternity. Amen.